Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. This week, David Cameron is expected to announce plans to build a database of the DNA profiles of every British citizen and to marry this information to their medical records to discover how genes and diseases are linked. So this week we are unzipping your genes to find out how they're controlled and also why what a grandmother eats can directly affect the health of her grandchildren. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Hello, it is Sunday the 9th of December and this is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. In the 1950s, James Watson and Francis Crick, working at Cambridge University, discovered the structure of DNA. Made up of just four different bases, or letters, A-C-T-G, which are linked together into long molecules that spell out genetic words or genes, DNA functions a bit like a recipe book, which cells use to cook up the chemicals that they need to function. But different sorts of cells need to use different genes, or recipes, to do their different jobs. And how this is controlled is partly down to a process called epigenetics. And joining us to explain how this works is Stephanie Seisenberger from the Babraham Institute in Cambridge. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. So how does all this work then? Tell us how it, how it works. As you said, different cells in your body need to take on completely different functions. And this is all down to which genes are active or inactive in each individual cell. So each gene has a, a sort of molecular switch which can turn the gene on or off. And it's those switches that we study in epigenetics. When you say switches, how do they work? What sorts of switches are we talking about here? So one of the hallmarks of epigenetics is DNA methylation. So there are small chemical groups that are attached directly to the DNA, and they're usually associated with turning a gene off. But there are also proteins called histones that DNA is wrapped around. So you know DNA is wrapped and packed very tightly in a cell. And depending on which modifications are attached onto the histones, DNA can be wrapped more tightly or less. And depending on that, a gene can be kept active or inactive. I see. So there's sort of two-dimensional control here, isn't there? So we've got things that can stick onto the DNA physically and then things that will stick onto the proteins that the DNA is wound around. And this affects the shape of the DNA and therefore whether or not it gets read. So you have several layers of or several ways of affecting gene activity by the DNA sequence itself or by the proteins that DNA is wrapped around. How are these markers or these chemical groups added either to the DNA or to those proteins so in the first place? 
there are specific proteins that do that job. So there are um, enzymes called DNA methyltransferases that attach the methyl groups to the DNA directly. But there are also proteins that modify the histones. So again, you, you have several sort of signaling layers that can they can be accessed. So they're like miniature machines, I suppose. They go yeah, along, yeah. wandering along and adding these chemicals onto the DNA to, to open it up or close it off. Exactly, yeah. So when we talk about a cell having a certain epigenetic profile, a, a cell that does a certain yes. job, say a skin cell compared with a gut yeah. cell or something, if I compared the the profile of those markers in the two cell types, that they would look different between the two they types would look of cells. different, exactly. So that's what we call cellular identity. Each cell has a, a certain job or does a specific function and um, each cell has a, a specific epigenetic profile that, that sort of mirrors that function. And that's basically how a cell knows what it is and what it has to do. So how does that epigenetic profile get set in my gut cell? How does it know to put those markers on the right places in that cell and a skin cell to do... The equivalent. So that would probably start very early on already in embryonic development. So you start off with one cell, basically, then you... That's the fertilised egg. Exactly. And then that develops further into a structure called the blastocyst. And here you have embryonic stem cells, and they can turn into any cell type in the, in the body. And then these develop further and sort of get pushed into what we call a certain cellular lineage or cellular identity. So you get certain methylation marks or other marks that sort of contribute to cells taking on a certain function and that can later on in life then um, be further modified. So as the embryo subdivides into these different lineages or or cells that are going to produce different tissues, the cells then add these markers as they go through, so as they become more and more specialist. Exactly, so that that cell fate is already decided in the embryo and then you just add onto onto that and get more and more specialised cells at the end. So looking at one very particular and important tissue, which is the tissue that makes our cells that are going to enable us to reproduce, in the case of a a man, that's the testes, and in the case of a woman, the developing ovary to make all of her future eggs, they've got to produce a cell then, sperm or ova, in which these epigenetic tags have been wiped away. Yeah, so um, it happens even earlier than that. So um, quite early in the developing embryo, you already set aside the cells that will later on become um, sperm or egg. And in these particular cells, what happens is that epigenetic information gets reset completely on a global scale. So you sort of wipe out all methylation marks and also the histone marks become reset. So you know how environmental influences can, can affect not only the mother, but also the developing child within her. But as we now know, this can also affect the cells within the developing child that will later on become the grandchildren or contribute to the grandchildren. So should there be any environmental influences that have put down epigenetic marks in the wrong way, that can be wiped out and you provide a clean slate for the third generation. But conversely, when a woman is pregnant with, say, a a daughter inside her, developing daughter inside her, then that daughter is going to have her own eggs being incorporated into her ovary. So at at one point, there is three generations there. There's the woman herself who's pregnant, then the the baby inside her, and that baby's babies. Yeah, exactly. It's three generations. 
environmental influences of the pregnant mother not only affect the child but also the grandchildren. Do we know whether that wiping out is genuinely comprehensive at that stage or is it possible that a growing baby is being exposed to various factors from the mother's environment and that they can set genes for the life of that baby and potentially the life of the baby's offspring? Yes. We don't understand exactly how, but we know it does happen. So there are multiple examples also in, in history where, where things like that have happened. But we're, we're just starting to understand how this whole process works and um, how things can escape this whole reprogramming process. I've got a question here from Emily Seward, who's just sent this in and said, um, epigenetic changes um, and preferences. So she's asking about why you like things and why you don't. Um, could it be that uh, when you like something when you're older but don't like it when you're younger, could some of these preferences be, and, and that's obviously a slightly simplified thing, but could it be that part of our changing behaviour or the way we age could be down to epigenetic programming? Yeah, so um, epigenetics is a very important factor in ageing and that's something that's become more and more clear in, in recent years. Um, specific traits or likes or dislikes um, I, I don't know how much is, that is down to epigenetics, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if that is the case. And what about reversing this? Because Tia Gibson has got in touch and said, is there any research into undoing some of the stuff that's been done? You were mentioning about how you know, a baby inside, uh, a mother who's pregnant has the future babies inside that. He says here, if our parents' lifestyles before we were conceived can determine how much of our DNA expresses itself, is there any research into potentially undoing things like predisposition to obesity, diabetes and addiction? Undoing things, I, I'm not sure about, but simply by having a healthy lifestyle, you can take preventative measures. And simply by being aware that what you do, what you eat, what you expose yourself to will affect future generations can maybe raise awareness and help preventing damage. Stephanie, thank you very much. Stephanie Seisenberger from the Babraham Institute. Now, apart from enabling us to understand how cells function normally, or perhaps when we're developing, epigenetics can also give us some new treatments for a range of diseases, including cancers. And haematologist Dr Mark Dawson from Cambridge University works on this very question. I presume in your case, Mark, it's chiefly going to be diseases or cancers of the blood, leukaemias that you're interested in. That's right, Chris. So um, I spend part of my time at Addenbrooke's Hospital caring for patients with various types of blood cancers, including leukaemia, as you, as you just said. Which type? Because you've done some pretty instrumental studies looking at the role of epigenetics in these leukaemias. Which ones were you looking at in particular? Because they're quite a big family, aren't they, of diseases? So, so broadly speaking, I, my research interest is about the acute leukaemias. So these leukaemias are cancers of white blood cells. And somewhere between sort of five to eight to ten people per hundred thousand of the population develop an acute leukemia. Now, really, what's sad about this disease is that despite progress in modern medicine and supportive care, we've made very little progress in trying to cure the vast majority of these patients. You know, with our current therapies, only less than less than thirty percent of these patients actually get cured. When we look back over the history of treating leukemias, though. Once upon a time, we just knew people had some kind of disease that made them have enormous numbers of the wrong sort of white blood cells in their blood, and we knew that they got sick, and we knew that giving them drugs that were horrendous but killed off those cells seemed to make them live longer. Now we understand quite a bit about what's going on genetically about these disorders. That's right. Um, so now if you take acute leukemia, for instance, we know in over half of these patients what the initiating event is. So this is a genetic abnormality that is called a chromosomal translocation. 
And what happens here is that part of the chromosome, a chromosome breaks off and fuses abnormally to a completely different chromosome. What this results in is the fusion of genes from two different chromosomes together. So if I had, say, chromosome number one and a chunk fell off of there, it could take itself to chromosome number two and stick itself on instead of the equivalent chunk of, say, chromosome number two. And where the two joined, I've now got two sections of of genetic material linked together and I've, I've effectively made a new gene by linking that chunk of chromosome to the other chromosome. That's exactly right. These are, these are called fusion genes, and they're only really present in the cancerous cells. So none of our normal cells, whilst they have two original copies of what these genes are, they don't have the fusion together. And what do those fusion genes do? So uh, the vast majority of them serve to initiate or drive the process of leukaemia. And the, the fusions I've been studying more recently um, are called the MLL fusions. So here, you know, one part of this fusion is a gene that's called the MLL gene, and this produces a protein related to the proteins that you and Stephanie have just been talking about, an epigenetic regulator. And what it does is it binds very specifically to a small set of genes, and it modifies by laying down a chemical group on the histone protein surrounding these genes. And what this modification does is really prepare this gene to be turned on. So the MLL MLL gene is involved in the initiation of gene expression. So there's a normal gene there whose job it is to go to a certain part of the DNA of a cell and say, right, you are going to turn on and your gene is going to be expressed. Correct. So when we then take that gene and fuse it to another gene, making this funny fusion, it retains the ability to to address itself to different bits of the genome, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. Its targeting potential is still preserved. And what else happens beside that? So what happens is what we've realised more recently is many of the fusions that the MLL gene is stuck towards, the, the other genes, are also genes that, you know, code for proteins that are involved in the process of gene expression. But these proteins really continue the process of gene expression and are involved in the completion of gene expression. So what these fusions eventually do is they form this sort of turbocharged driver of gene expression. You know, it increases the expression of several of the MLL target genes, but also increases the expression of genes that should normally be turned off at this stage. So you end up with this fusion protein taking a very potent turn-on signal yeah. for genes to lots of different places in the genome that wouldn't normally get turned on like that. Correct. And that starts the cells dividing and growing in this abnormal cancerous way. That's right. Many of these genes that are turned on in this way actually confer upon these cancerous cells a survival and growth advantage. And that's, you know, eventually what leads to the process of leukemia. Begging the question, now you know that, could you intervene and interrupt the ability of that funny protein to address itself to all these different places in the genome and turn it off? Yeah, so that's, that's exactly what we've been studying. We've been trying to understand what, what's clear is that these fusion proteins don't work in isolation. They work with a number of collaborators, you know, other proteins that form what we call a protein complex. And each component of this protein complex plays an important role in the regulation of this gene expression. And so we looked very deeply to understand what are the components of the MLL fusion protein complex. And we found that there are part of this complex contain a group of proteins whose job it is to anchor the MLL fusions at these specific genes. And they do so by using a special binding module 
that recognises a chemical group on the histone proteins. So it binds this and locks on there and keeps the whole protein complex there. So you've understood what the molecular Velcro is that sticks this strong expressor of uh, genes to the wrong bits of the genome. So have you got some way of interrupting that process? That's right. So in collaboration with uh, GSK, a pharmaceutical company, who developed a molecular decoy, so to speak. So what this small molecule is, is that it largely mimics the chemical modification that we see on the histones. And so this works as a decoy to draw away the protein complex from being locked on to the genes to away from the genes so that now the genes can actually be turned off. And was this in mice or people? So we use this in a number of different studies, um, a number of laboratory models of leukemia, including studying cells and how they grow in a dish, what genes they turn on and turn off, and how this small molecule turns these genes off. And we were also able to show very successfully in models of leukemia, mouse models of leukemia, that this small molecule really confers an impressive therapeutic advantage for these, uh, for these mice. Are you doing this in humans now? So based on, based on our study and other studies from around the world, phase one clinical trials with this compound in patients with cancer have already started in the US and we're hoping that this will you know, uh, follow on and be rolled out to, to the UK where you know, some of our patients can be involved. I suppose it's relevant with David Cameron saying he wants everyone to be in a human DNA data- database across the country and marry that data to... Uh, our medical records. But this, I suppose we should emphasise, is one particular kind of leukaemia and you've had to do this sort of DNA detective story to work out how this disease occurs. We couldn't just assume that the same compound is going to work in a range of other diseases because they're going to have a different process, aren't they? That's exactly right. And, and, and we know that is true for this compound. You know, it works in a very specific subset of cancers, leukaemia being one of those cancers, um, but it's not a panacea for cancer. You know, so it's not likely that this will be what we've been looking for to cure all cancers because different cancers are driven by very different genetic events. Mark, thank you. Mark Dawson from Cambridge University. A quick question for you, Mark. Heather Williams says, can we train our phenotype by altering our epigenetics? Could we potentially modulate the expression of genes that are related to an increased cancer risk, for instance, our BRCA1 and 2 genes that cause breast cancer? Um, so if I understand the question correctly, you know, is there, is there ways and means by which we can modulate whether a gene turns on or off at a particular time? Now, in theory, this is possible because, you know, the epigenome or these various modifications that control whether a gene gets turned on or off, as you've been talking about, are, are reversible. These aren't static entities. So in theory, we may be able to fine-tune this in the future. We're not there yet, but we, we may be able to do this in the future. Thank you very much. This is The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Ginny Smith. We're talking about epigenetics this week. Still to come, we'll be looking at the epigenetics of adult stem cells and we're finding out if a developing baby can get cancer. OK, Ginny, you've been taking a look at the news this week. What have you got for us? Well, I've found a story that seems to suggest that having children lowers your likelihood of dying. 
Now, this is a difficult area to research because you can't conduct a randomised trial like you normally would to test a hypothesis. What scientists would like to do is take a group of people and randomly assign some of them to have children and some of them not to. But this isn't possible and it's definitely not ethical. So a team from Aarhus University in Denmark, led by Espen Agerbo, attempted to get round this problem by using a natural experiment. They followed couples who were undergoing IVF treatment and examined the differences between those for whom the treatment was successful and those for whom it wasn't. Oh, that's good, because then you've got basically all things being considered. They're both the same, but one group ended up with the kids, the other group wanted to have kids but then didn't unfortunately have kids so you can just compare the two. Exactly so previously couples who were childless out of choice and those who were unable to have children had been put in the same category but as you said this study avoided this as all the childless couples had been through the IVF process so it wasn't by choice um, and they also interestingly looked at parents who adopted children as, and compared them to the childless and those with the biological child. So criticisms of previous studies suggested that the differences found might be due to the fact that not being able to have children is an indicator of poor health. In this study, none of the participants, even those who ended up with children, had been able to conceive naturally. So that reduces the risk of this being an important factor in the findings. Well, obviously it doesn't completely negate it, but you're right, it does mitigate it. So what did they actually find when they did the analysis? Well, um, in this study, which was published in the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health, by the way, um, they followed the parents for between 3 and 14 years after they'd started IVF and found that the childless women had a rate of death four times higher than those with a child, whether that child was biological or adopted. Of course, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, and, and men with children also benefited, though not quite so much. They were half as likely to die as their childless counterparts. Well, that's reassuring. It's good. I'll have another kid then. <laughs> They didn't actually look, or they didn't mention whether they looked at whether more children cuts your risk even further, actually. So I'm not sure if that would help. It doesn't feel like it, but anyway, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> but they did look at instances of psychiatric illness, and they found that the rate amongst those with biological children didn't actually differ at all from the childless couples, apart from in the case of substance abuse, which was lower. Interestingly, parents who adopted children had a lower rate of psychiatric illness than either of the other two groups. Now, this might be explained because the selection criteria for um, adoption is very rigorous and could actually rule out any couples who might have an underlying, maybe even undiagnosed psychiatric illness. Now, we've got to be a little bit careful because the study does have its limitations. The authors admit that income, education and age may all have confounding roles. But it does seem to provide an intriguing glimpse into the benefits of child rearing. You may think they're driving you into an early grave, but your kids might actually be helping you live a long and healthy life. It's extraordinary, though, to think that now I have some children, statistically, I have a death rate risk half what it was before. Do they actually speculate in the paper why there's such a dramatic reduction? And for women, fourfold. No, they don't go into that at all in this paper. But if you think about it, I think someone with a child is possibly likely to engage in less risky behaviours. You might be less likely to, I don't know, skydive or sort of more mundane risky things like drinking a lot or smoking. I think people, when they have children, start to feel very responsible and responsible for themselves as well because their children are dependent on them. Oh, that's me. Paragon of responsibility. Now, David Cameron this week is expected to unveil some plans to build a database that is going to store every British citizen's DNA records. And the idea is that we can marry those DNA records to a person's medical records. 
And this means that you can then enable researchers to understand how a DNA makeup of an individual actually links to their risk of getting certain diseases. Well, maybe we'll return to that in a second, but not quite on the same scale, but important all the same. is a paper in Nature this week which is doing uh, something similar for blood because a group of researchers internationally have collaborated on the genetic recipe for a red blood cell. And what they've done is to do what we call a genome-wide association study. And what this involves is taking DNA sequences from huge numbers of people. In this case, they've looked at more than 135,000 people. And they have taken all of the parameters of their red blood cells, in other words, the cells that are responsible for carrying oxygen around in the bloodstream. And they've mapped out the size of the cells, they've looked at the amount of haemoglobin in the cells, how long the cells live for, all these kind of indices. And they have compared those parameters with the genetic sequences of all these people, and they're looking for things that link. One feature always crops up with another sort of gene region. And they have found 75 genetic regions, 121 genes, and uh, almost half of those genes are completely new to science, and they're related to what runs a red blood cell. So this isn't going to change the world tomorrow, but it does give us an important series of leads in terms of understanding how these red cells work. They're a very important disease target because some people suffer from problems related to, say, anemia or diseases like malaria, why certain cells might be targeted by malaria. If we understand the genetic underpinnings of how these cells work, we're much better able to develop new treatments and drugs to to combat this. So I think it's pretty important. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. What about going back to the the sort of David Cameron announcement point of view? Would you be entirely happy to have your medical records and database to help science? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm all for doing anything that can help improve science, help people who suffer from various illnesses. We might learn more about that sort of thing. But there's always the worry of having your data stored that someone who shouldn't might be able to get access to it. So I think they'd have to be very careful as to how they controlled access and making sure that it was all anonymised. You wouldn't want prospective employers being able to access your medical records and use that to determine whether you were fit for a job. It is something that just needs to be thought about very carefully. So also in the news this week, I found a study which used touchscreen technology to shed light on how we evolved to be so intelligent and how this development may have made us susceptible to mental illness. Now, we humans have been successful because of our ability to solve problems and think flexibly about the world around us. It seems, however, that some of the genes that allow us to do so are much older than our species. They date back to when we shared a common ancestor with mice and maybe even further. Well, how long ago is that then? Well, um, we split from our common ancestor with mice 100 million years ago, so really quite a long time. And what did this group do? Well, this study was done by researchers from eight different institutes and it was led by Bussey and Grant and it compared human and mouse intelligence using touchscreen tasks which can be adapted to work for both humans and mice. <laughs> I was just thinking, I mean, how do you actually get a mouse operating a touchscreen? So what do they do, press it with their nose or something? Yeah, exactly. So they obviously aren't quite as dexterous as us but you can flash things up and ask them to, to tap it with their nose and see if they can learn to do so. So rather than a mouse pad, it's a, an iPad. <laughs> Yes, exactly. An iPad for mice. Um, So in this study, they compared mice with mutations to various different genes within the same family. And these genes are involved in creating signalling molecules which are found in the brain. Now, invertebrates, things like insects, which with a few exceptions are thought to be less intelligent than vertebrates, that's animals with backbones like us, the invertebrates have only one of these genes. 
But 550 million years ago, the vertebrate genome duplicated itself, not once, but twice. So most vertebrates have retained several versions of these genes. So they found that mice missing one of these genes, one particular gene, could not complete even very simple learning tasks. Is there an equivalent in humans? Um, yes, there does seem to be. These genes seem to be quite conserved in humans, and they did look at that a bit later in the study. Um, two of the other genes they looked at seem to have a really interesting interacting pattern. Um, so these two affected different and more complicated learning and attention tasks to the first one. And it seems that they work in opposition to each other and together control these high-level cognitive abilities. So why would you have a gene then, one of which is good at making you bright and the other one which seems to make you less bright? Why have genes that make you thick? Well, that's a really interesting question and we're not entirely sure, but it seems like you have to regulate these things to the optimal level. So as you mentioned earlier, there are some human analogues to this and autistic people are quite similar to the mice who have mutations to the gene so they're actually better at some of these tasks. So these mice with this particular mutation were very good at visual discrimination and had very high attention. And that's what we find in autistic individuals. So it may be that being particularly good at this one thing actually means that you're not as good at functioning in our crazy world where there's so much going on. And is there evidence that autistic people have changes to these genes that might push them into that? Spectrum. Now, there wasn't direct evidence for this gene, I don't think, but some of the proteins that the gene interacts with have been implicated in autism. So this is good evidence of how studying how these genes operate in simple animals like mice can inform a much more complicated picture as goes on in a human. Exactly. So not only has it shed some light on how intelligence evolved, but it also seems to suggest that we might pay a price for this intelligence and that price might be mental health conditions. Also this week, a new scientific journal is being launched in Cambridge. We do need an alternative to the pre-existing uh, process of publication that every scientist has to undergo. And allowing the process to occur in a way that's much more efficient and serves the purpose of getting the most up-to-date, high-quality scientific information into the hands of the scientific community is really the goal we should go for. We need a new journal because uh, the journals which, we, which are on the market don't have the mechanisms to select the best possible science. This will be a journal for scientists edited by scientists. So the scientists will be at the heart of the decision-making process, uh, they'll be the best peer reviewers, and then scientific editors will make the decisions. So it will be a journal for peers by peers. I certainly hope that you know, a defining feature of this journal would be rapid, transparent, scientifically-based editorial decisions, one in which we don't at all sacrifice the quality of science, but we make the process much, much more efficient. The journal's called eLife. The managing editor is Mark Patterson. So rapid, efficient, transparent publication, uncompromising on quality. It sounds great what we've just heard on that soundtrack, but how are you going to do this better than a normal journal? One of the initial things that we're going to do, we have to, you heard a lot of emphasis there on quality. So one of the things that eLife is going to do is to be a, a great journal for publishing very influential and important science across all of biology and medicine and make that work 
openly available. So anyone with an interest in that work can read it and they can do whatever they want with it, which is really important because, you know, most of the science that you hear about in programs like this or you read about in the media, maybe 90% of that you have to pay to read. So the first step really is to make research openly available. So that's the first thing that eLife is going to do differently. But you, you also heard other themes in those talks there. Um, and they were from the people behind the project, the funders behind the project. So one of the other themes was that the journal should be run by scientists for scientists. And so another thing that's different about eLife is that we have a group of, of 200 scientists who are committed to a, a different way of reviewing the work, taking work through peer review so it's more efficient and more rapid and more constructive than you see in a conventional journal. So just one example of something that we're doing differently is that when the reviews, the review comments are sent to the authors, what happens is the authors don't actually see the full reports. Instead, what happens is the editor who's handling that manuscript assimilates and consolidates the comments of the reviewers after a discussion amongst the reviewers so that the authors just receive a single set of instructions and they know exactly what they need to do in order to get the work uh, revised and then published. Um, and that makes the whole thing happen much more quickly. So, so those are a couple of ways in which uh, eLife will be different. That all sounds great, but... If this is so good, why hasn't it been done already? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a great question. I think there are some pretty powerful forces which keep the system of journals and the way that articles are published in journals operating in the way that it has done for decades or even centuries. I think there are probably two main forces at the moment. One is the fact that the, the publishers that publish subscription-based journals make an awful lot of money out of it. So the, there's, you know, there's a strong commercial incentive to keep things as they are. On the other hand, the scientists who, who publish their work, they have to publish in journals with an established reputation. And if most of those journals are subscription-based journals, then you've got a kind of a, a, a cycle that reinforces itself. Now, having said that, there are similarly powerful forces of, of change as well beginning to operate. eLife, you know, will provide some real momentum towards open access by providing, you know, a highly prestigious journal home for really great science and make that science openly available to everybody. But there are many other publishers now, new publishers like the Public Library of Science, for example, that are showing how this kind of way of publishing can work uh, successfully. So, you know, we've come so far, we've got 10 to 15 percent of the literature is now available to everyone. Um, there's very powerful momentum that, that will take us further, um, but there's still a, quite a lot of work to do. Most journals, they make their money through subscriptions. People pay to read them. Um, if you're not making money via that way, how, how are you doing this? Who's funding it? So the three voices that you heard uh, at the beginning in that segment there were from three funders. So eLife is supported by three of the most prestigious funders in the world, the Wellcome Trust uh, in the UK, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in the United States and the Max Planck Society in Germany. So in our case, we're funded. And, um, you know, our job is to respond to the kind of vision of the funders behind the project and launch the best possible journal we can. Other publishers are showing through other business models and other approaches how this kind of approach to open access publishing can operate in a, in a sustainable uh, way through other business models. 
Just one final question. How are you going to make this appealing to the scientists who at the moment want to get published in Nature or one of the really prestigious journals? How are you going to make sure that yours, your journal is just as appealing as those? It's another very important question. I think the things that we have going for us are that we have, as I mentioned, the, these three very prestigious funders who are behind the project. So I, I think that lends a huge amount of credibility to the scientific community who are considering submitting to the journal. We also have a terrific group of 200 scientists who are responsible for running the journal. So I think those two things will really help us to attract great work. And, and you know, we have already started publishing work now, and we, we are, in fact, receiving some really terrific science. I think the other thing that we have to offer that's very important is just this the speed of the process, especially for people who are early in their careers. They cannot afford to wait around for months and months to get their work published. And it's not uncommon, actually, that people can wait, you know, spend more than a year to get a, a great piece of science published. And so, you know, that's another reason why I think eLife can offer something very special to scientists. Great. Thanks a lot, Mark. That was Mark Patterson, the Executive Managing Editor of the new journal eLife. And if people want to find you on the web, Mark, what's the web address? As elifesciences.org. Terrific. Time for this week's Planet Earth now. And Britain's continuing wet weather has highlighted a serious problem facing towns and cities, urban flooding. Rather than soaking through the soil, water in built-up areas is blocked by concrete, tarmac and tile and can overwhelm the drains and flood. But there is an alternative, at least in some areas. Suds, or sustainable drainage systems, with some neat ideas for urban planners. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham has been speaking to hydrogeologist Rachel Dearden at the British Geological Survey in Keyworth near Nottingham. Suds tries to mimic the natural conditions that you would get in a, in a hydrological system. So we're trying to store that water in the catchment instead of allowing it to flow quickly downhill. So there's a few ways we can do this. The most natural scenario is that that water infiltrates straight into the ground. Where this can't happen because the ground is not permeable enough, naturally that water would collect in ponds, in depressions, and slowly that would then either infiltrate to the ground or it would flow in watercourses through the catchment. But importantly, we don't get these really intense flows usually in natural environment. This is really only an urban phenomena. And one of the ideas is the idea of permeable pavements, of, of having a hard surface but that the water can flow through. Exactly, trying to um, emulate what would happen naturally. So if we have an area where we want to have a hard surface, then we can just make sure there's, there's avenues for the water to dissipate through the surface and into the ground. So importantly, we need to think about what the properties of the ground are and what sort of systems we can design to be compatible with those properties. So for example, um, just to the west of Nottinghamshire, we have um, a sandstone bedrock. It's very permeable and we can quite happily concentrate our water flow into a relatively small area, for example, into a soakaway, which is just a pit in the ground. And then that water can, um, can dissipate quite happily into the aquifer. Conversely, to the east of Nottingham, um, we have the Mercy Mudstone Group, which we're actually standing on now. And this comprises clay. It's really quite impermeable. And as we can see now, if we step around... We're on a bit of grass here, and it's just <laughs> muddy and horrible. <laughs> it's quite muddy and horrible. And, and here, you try pretty hard to focus any uh, recharge rainwater into the ground. And so in a place like this, maybe you can install 
solid infiltration basin that actually provides storage on the surface um, and allows that, therefore allowing that water to infiltrate very slowly. But actually what the, we chose here when we designed our new buildings behind us is a rainwater harvesting system. So rainwater is harvested on our roofs and it's used to flush our toilets. And this is a good example of a sustainable drainage system which doesn't involve the ground. So we can install sustainable drainage systems absolutely anywhere. It's just that in some places we can infiltrate to the ground and in other places we really should focus on either storing water on the surface or reusing it. Could you retrofit these sorts of systems? Certainly retrofitting is a, is a big area of interest. In cities and um, when we regenerate areas, can we possibly put in sustainable drainage systems? And there's a real space issue here. So trying to um, find space for an infiltration basin is really quite difficult in urban areas. But still we can do things like put in permeable pavement, for example, instead of hard road surfaces, rainwater harvesting. There's always options. And you've actually put together a map of where this would work in the UK and where it wouldn't work in the UK. Not exactly, but almost. So we've created what we call an infiltration suds map. And this map shows you what the properties of the ground are. So we cannot say um, here you can install a circuit or here you can install an infiltration basin because it very much depends on the design of the actual system. So what is the surface area of the system? What is its volume? But we can tell you how permeable the ground is, whether you're on a floodplain, whether the groundwater is likely to be very shallow, whether if you put water in the ground you're going to cause a ground stability problem or you could impact groundwater quality. And so the map Tells, gives you data that tells you all about these considerations so that you can then go away and make a decision about what sort of system might be appropriate. But are there imperatives for people to, to do this, for builders, for planners, for architects, engineers to take these sorts of things into account? So the case with retrofitting is less clear, but certainly for new builds, there's a new, new legislation called the Floods and Water Management Act, and this requires that um, developers must consider using, using sustainable drainage instead of connecting to the drainage network. This legislation hasn't been implemented yet, but when it has been, it will mean that developers must prioritise the use of infiltration to the ground. So they must consider the properties of the ground and they must consider using infiltration as the most kind of natural and sustainable drainage system. If that's not possible because of the properties of the ground, and they then must consider um, storing water on the surface in infiltration basins, for example. And if that's not possible, then they may consider putting the water into the drainage network. But the key thing is that the right for them to connect to the drainage network is not necessarily going to be there in the future and they are going to have to think of other, other ways to solve this problem. Hydrogeologist Rachel Dearden talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can hear more in the Planet Earth podcast. You'll find it on our website or Planet Earth online. This is The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Ginny Smith. We're actually talking epigenetics this week. We'll return to that theme just in a second and we'll also find out whether or not a fetus can get cancer. Interestingly, and this might be one we can ask our other guest this week, Mark Dawson, to comment on. Pauline texted in, Mark, and said uh, a baby uh, died at three months of age with acute leukaemia, but the doctor said the baby was born with it. Could that be the case? Yes. So, Chris, what we now know is that many of the infantile leukaemias um, actually have their origins in utero. So when we go and have a look at, you know, whenever any baby's born, and you would have seen this with your own kids, you have a heel prick test, um, and this is taken away to be tested for a number of common genetic diseases. But when you go back and have a look at these samples and say, you know, is, for instance, as I described, you know, these chromosomal translocations, these abnormal fusion genes that drive leukaemia, are they present when the baby's actually born? In 
a number of cases, the answer is yes. So this abnormal genetic event is not inherited, but for some reason happens while the baby is in utero. Mark, thank you. And we'll return to this subject with our question of the week towards the end of the programme. Well, let's get back to our theme this week, which is epigenetics. We've heard previously how this is one of the ways in which genes can be turned on or off in different cell types. And if a cell divides, so it splits into two daughter cells, these also inherit the same epigenetic programme. So what happens then when we use specialised mature adult cells, like a skin cell, to make adult stem cells that we can then, for instance, turn into brain cells or heart cells to treat diseases? Are the epigenetic markers all reset correctly in the process? Well, it's looking like the answer could be no. From the University of Western Australia, Ryan Lister. When people started making these adult stem cells, which were able to turn into many different types of cells, a central question was, well, do these adult stem cells look like embryonic stem cells, which you can then turn into many different types of cells. This is an important question because we want to know when you, when you start with these adult stem cells, do they start from this clean slate where you're able to then turn them into any differentiated cell type that you wish, or do they start with any residual marks, sort of a hangover of originally being a, a differentiated cell in the body. So what we actually did was to profile the genomes of these uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, they're called, these adult stem cells, and look at exactly where the methylation marks, these chemical tags were throughout the 3 billion bases of the human genome, and compare this to embryonic stem cells to see if there were any differences between the adult stem cells and the embryonic stem cells. And it turns out that there are hundreds of differences in these chemical tags, these epigenetic tags, between the adult stem cells and the embryonic stem cells. What happens is that you have some memory of the adult cell type. The adult stem cell that you've derived from, say, a skin cell in a couple of hundred places in the genome has these chemical tags which still look like the tags as you would find them in the skin cell and look different to the, the pattern of the tags that you would find in the stem cells. What do you think the consequence of that could be? Well, the potential consequence of that is that ideally what we want to do is to take these adult stem cells and turn them into different cell types that we require for therapeutic purposes in our body for repair, say. And so you may take a skin cell and turn it into a cell required for repair of your heart. Now, if the adult stem cell that you derive from the skin cell has these epigenetic tags which prevent certain genes being turned on, which may need to be turned on when the, the cell is turned into a heart cell, then it potentially could uh, cause problems for deriving functional, fully functional heart cells from the adult stem cells. Do we know why they don't set those tags right? Is it that the reprogramming that we're doing is incomplete in some way? That's right. So it appears that there may be certain regions of the genome which may be difficult to reprogram. So this reprogramming process where you create an adult stem cell typically involves taking a very small number of genes, for example, four genes, and turning them back on in the skin cell. And these genes are able to bind many places in the genome and sort of kickstart it into a different pattern of activity so it becomes like a stem cell. And some uh, very recent work showed that certain regions of the genome, uh, when this reprogramming process is taking place, 
are quite resistant to being bound by these reprogramming factors. And interestingly, those regions are where we found many of these differences in these epigenetic tags between the adult stem cells and the embryonic stem cells. Scientists have got a number of different ways of making these so-called IPS or induced pluripotent stem cells when you take a skin cell and turn it back into this stem cell-like state. Some involve using viruses to put these four genes in. Others involve just putting the four genes in via what we call transfection. You just put the DNA into the cell. Does it make a difference how you make the cells, whether or not you get this washing clean of the genetic slate or not? Do some methods work better than others? Well, from what we've seen so far, it, you find this memory in, no matter which methodology you use. Uh, that's not to say there aren't approaches that will produce uh, perfectly reprogrammed uh, adult stem cells. But so far from the different methodologies that we've looked at, iPS cells created with uh, these different methodologies, we, we find these uh, consistent differences between iPS cells and embryonic stem cells in all of them. Is it just that we need to put more of these resetting factors in? Is it just a, a shortage of supply? Or is there something fundamentally missing that we, we need to get on top of? I'm not sure that it's a shortage of supply. It, it could be that we need to pre-treat the adult cells, the differentiated cells, in order to make these certain resistant parts of the genome more amenable to binding these reprogramming factors. This is a, something we don't know at this stage, but there are potentially ways that we can poke the cell beforehand to try to put it into a state which is more amenable to reprogramming. But certainly an, an area which uh, a lot of research is going into at this stage. So if in future we wanted to use these cells, would we make a huge batch of them and then go through using the techniques you use and find the ones that have got the best epigenetic profile and say, right, that, those are the pool we'll use and we just discard the ones that, that have got a less attractive profile? Yeah, I think there are potentially, uh, there may be, say, three different approaches that we could use in the future. We may be able to identify reprogramming conditions which create iPS cells which look to all uh, intents and purposes, just like the embryonic stem cells. We may alternatively be able to uh, create many iPS cells from from a skin cell, for example, and it might be that a small percentage of them look uh, perfectly like an embryonic stem cell, but it's just that we need to check, say, a large panel of them to find the, the one which looks very good. Or it may be that we are able in the future to develop methods to specifically reprogram or correct epigenetic patterns precisely where we want. And so we could take an adult stem cell, an iPS cell, and identify through these epigenome sequencing methodologies where differences exist between the iPS cell and the embryonic stem cell, and then go in and correct them and subsequently use them. That's Ryan Lister from the University of Western Australia. It's The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Ginny Smith, and uh, we're talking epigenetics this week. Now, we've got lots of questions coming in for you guys, so we'll have a go to get through as many of these as we can. Probably this one's good for you, Mark. Um, Pekka Oilinki says on Facebook, radiation is often considered harmful for us on a personal level, but could it be beneficial for humankind because it will speed up genetic mutation and therefore our development in general? What do you think? 
Uh, interesting question and philosophical question. I'm not sure we've been made to evolve that quickly, Chris. Um, uh, you know, radiation plays a very important role in treatment, and especially in the treatment of some cancers. But I'm not sure that it would be a very effective way for us to try and evolve. It's reassuring. I'll, uh, I'll avoid Chernobyl in future then. Thank you, Mark. Um, Pushkar Nareshta uh, said on Facebook, uh, probably one for you, Stephanie, can nanotechnology, like mini robots, for instance, change our DNA and our body in the future? Would you see this being a, a therapy of the future? If you think about proteins working in the cell, there are in some way nanorobots that do their job. I mean, this is a very, still a very long way to go, but m- yeah, maybe. <laughs> so you're saying that the mini machines in the forms of enzymes that we already have in our cells doing these jobs, they're, they're like robots anyway. They are, yeah. So if you could use them and make them do what, what you plan to do, then yes. Josie Moynihan has said, uh, one DNA strand says to the other, do you think these genes will make me look fat? Boom. Uh, Theo Gibson, this one probably for you, Stephanie. Is there anything discovered to date which might explain how instincts are encoded in DNA, like spiders doing certain things with their webs and certain human behaviours, for example? There are some human behaviours that are definitely hardwired in the genetic code, like the fear of, of heights comes comes back to living in trees and having to hold on, or fear of dark is, comes to, you know, the fear of being eaten by a predator. Um, I think there's some genes that we know are involved in this, um, but I think it's still a question scientists are working on today. Thanks, Stephanie. Mark, Lezanova says, how does cancer evade the body? I presume he means how does it escape the clutches of, say, the immune system getting rid of cancerous cells? If, if genetics allow cells to replicate uncontrollably, why hasn't genetics evolved to boot the cancer out? So the truth is, Chris, um, the process of cancer is actually a very rare event. Many of ourselves are developing genetic abnormalities all the time. And the immune system does a very good job, as do some of these genetic events are actually deleterious for the cell itself. So they end up dying of their own mutations. But very, very rarely you get this perfect storm, really, where you have a cell that is able to survive and grow uncontrollably and also evade the immune system. And, you know, tumor surveillance or the study of cancer immunology is a huge field that is, uh, that is trying to understand this problem. Stephanie, uh, Sam Grabiel says, hey, naked scientists, will the science you're discussing pave the way for fine-tuning our offspring? In other words, um, actually making tweaks to them to, to make them healthier and fitter? Oh, wow. Um, interesting question. One could imagine that this could eventually lead to to something like this. But uh, I think we're still in the process of understanding the basic mechanisms behind everything. Mark? Um, I'd have to agree with Stephanie. I mean, I think, you know, it's possible. It's our field, our field of epigenetics is, you know, is still very much in its infancy in understanding how genes are controlled. We're, We're just starting to get a grip on this. So it may be in the future we might be able to bespoke this process a bit better. And uh, to finish us off, Andy Greaves says, Hi folks, how can we be sure what happens during in vitro studies is faithful uh, as a representation of what happens in vivo? Stephanie first. Well, this is like a classic problem in experimental genetics. You first have to be sure that your in vitro system is a very good one and you have various controls for that. And eventually you, you have to see if the same thing is happening in vivo. But, you know, it's a good way to start off. So start there and then build up. Exactly. Because it's generally cheaper as well. Yes. (laughs) Stephanie, thank you very much. Ginny. And now to finish, here with a fertile question of the week, it's Hannah Critchlow. 
The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week we find out what happens if there are problems with multiplications during the beginning of life. Hi, my name's Louis. I'm 15 and I come from London. I was just wondering, fetuses, their cells multiply really quickly, but I've never heard of one having cancer. Is it possible? So, can fetuses get cancer? Cancer is the unregulated growth of cells, and during pregnancy, cells divide very rapidly. There are mechanisms in place to prevent cancer developing, but, as Professor Graham Burton from Cambridge University points out... About 1 in 10,000 babies, when they're born, will have some sort of tumour, a swelling in the body, associated with abnormal growth. Thankfully, these are, are usually what we would call benign in that the cells do not invade into other parts of the body and so can be treated usually at the time of birth. In terms of true cancer, in terms of uncontrolled proliferation, the other way that a fetus could develop that is if it is transmitted from the mother. Fortunately, again, this is very rare. Most maternal tumours will not cross the placenta. The placenta forms a, a pretty effective barrier to both agents that would cause cancer in an adult so that the embryo is in a very protected environment, but it will also stop cells from the mother crossing into the fetus. But occasionally we know that there is mixing of the two circulations, the two blood systems, and if the mother has leukaemia or a similar condition, it has been reported that the fetus can develop the same problem. Finally, of course, the placenta itself can undergo a cancerous change. This, again, is, is very rare. It's associated with a very interesting uh, but curious condition known as hydatidiform mole. Normally, you would derive half of your chromosomes from the mother and half from the father, but in these cases, all of the chromosomes come from the father. And this causes very rapid proliferation of the placental tissues. Uh, but interestingly, you, you get very, very small growth of the fetus itself. And so often in these cases, there's no baby to be found at all, just a, a big mass of placenta. And, and because of this rapid proliferation, some of those placental cells can undergo a cancerous change. So, Louis, yes, fetuses can, very rarely, get cancer. We next point our fingers at the topic of touch sensitivity. Martin Schaefer got in touch with this question. There was an intriguing thing that happened today and we couldn't explain it to ourselves. Every time you touch a touch desk lamp, it goes on or off. But I accidentally touched the lamp with a piece of soap in my hand and the lamp went off. We tried out a lot of materials, but it didn't work with wood, stones, plastic or clothings. So we then found out that you can do the same trick with potatoes. Why does a piece of soap in my hand work so well to switch the lamp on or off as if it was my own hand? Many thanks. So what gives potato, soap and skin the special ability to activate a touch-sensitive gadget? Let us know your thoughts by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can join in the debate live on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. That was Hannah Critchlow. 
Well, that is all we have time for this week. We come to the end of the programme. I have to say a big thank you to our guests, Stephanie Seisenberger and Mark Dawson. Now, next week, we're going to be uncovering the science of broadcasting and finding out how radio actually works. So get your ears ready to find out exactly how this show reaches you. You can send your questions in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The production this week was by Hannah Critchlow, Ben Valsler and Tom Simpkins. See you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Scientists.com.